Hello everyone and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast, the podcast for anyone interested in the challenging opportunities of working in a temperature controlled supply chain. I'm Shane Brennan and when I'm not an amateur podcast host, I have the privilege of running the UK's Cold Chain Federation. CCF represents the businesses that store and move frozen and chilled food into the UK, out of the UK and within it. Today we start a mini series of interviews with some of the key leaders of trade associations. People who do the same job as me in different organisations representing other cold chain related industries. I'm really looking forward to sharing with you how they see the big challenges that we face in the cold chain from their perspective. You know how on Have I Got News For You there is a section where the joke is look at this obscure trade magazine title. Well it's like that with trade associations. Unless you're paying attention you don't realise there are hundreds of us and the more you look the more obscure they get. However in a crowded pond there are some big fish and there are not many bigger than the Food and Drink Federation. FDF is the voice of food manufacturing in the UK, the UK's largest manufacturing industry, as they don't stop reminding people. FDF are led by Ian Wright, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ian today. Hello, Ian, and welcome to the Cold Chain Podcast. Hi, Shane. Thanks very much for having me. Ian's led the FDF for more than five years now, and yet he keeps telling everybody that that's temporary. Having had a distinguished career in leadership roles across the UK and international drinks and food industries, he took over FDF in 2015, and I'm not just saying this because he's here, he has transformed it. I'm glad he did because it, as it turns out, he arrived just in time. The two major crises of our time, Brexit and COVID. Through both, FDF have been a vital and generous leader, especially to other trade, trade bodies like ourselves. So I think I sh- that should be my first question, Ian. Do you, did you know when you took over the Federation in 2015, what was coming? No, not at all. Um, I thought that there might be a a parallel between my previous work at Diageo and to a degree at Boots, where I'd spent pretty much 20 years before 2015. Um, I thought that there might be a parallel between responsible drinking and obesity. And I think I did see the sort of diet and health issue coming. But even in my worst nightmares, it never occurred to me that we would actually cock it up to the degree that we would have a Brexit, uh, A, that we would vote for Brexit. I think I might have been prepared to believe that at various points over the last 20 years, but I certainly wouldn't have believed that we could do it in such a way as we currently are. Um, and I, it, this, is, this is, I think, something that all people, all, everybody who has worked in a senior executive role would have to admit, or almost everybody, we've all been on risk committees, we've all participated in uh, risk and opportunity meetings and in audit risk audits over the years. Um, and I was on the PLC risk committee, and we've all seen global pandemics sit on the risk matrix and been assured that everyone, every one of our organisations has a plan to deal with it. And as it turns out, we don't. Um, no, no, I think that's, I mean, that's what, that's what really struck me in those first sort of few days, couple of weeks was people pulling out those plans and going, these don't, this doesn't fit, this doesn't do the job, which I think was a, quite a sobering moment for us all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing for me coming to FDF uh, from the drinks industry was the realisation around about the Tuesday or Wednesday of the week that Boris Johnson announced the lockdown, that hospitality was discretionary, that the hospitality industry wasn't absolutely certain to always be there or always be open. 
I really, really, really didn't imagine that there were any conditions in which the pubs and restaurants and bars and takeaways in this country would have to close. Uh, they stayed open through the Blitz, and I always thought that that was, you know, the 1919 flu epidemic. They stayed open actually in the 1960s uh, flu epidemic, which in the UK was far worse than COVID's been. Um, but the idea that they would shut was just something I'd never conceived of. Well, more fool me uh, and more fool all of us. Um, uh, so, so yeah, those plans that had been drawn up were really, really not fit for purpose. Apologies, but at this moment, the technology failed us. So I'm retrospectively putting in a bit of, uh, of a link. Um, I think Ian's points were really powerfully made here about the specific implications of how the hospitality sector will suddenly shut down overnight as a result of the crisis. I think that's probably the moment when it really hit home for me as well um, within the cold chain, seeing such a significant part of our industry uh, with vehicles parked up, with the door shut on their stores and um, a real sense of uncertainty about what the next few days, weeks and months would bring. I went on to sort of ask him how he felt now that we're some months into the crisis, how we felt the food industry has responded overall. And here's what he said. Well, I think it's been surprisingly resilient, actually. I, I, I'm not one of those who, who really accepts the notion that there was panic buying right at the start of uh, all of this in those uh, weeks in early and mid-March. I know that that's the common characterization, but actually I don't think people were panicking. I think they were behaving completely rationally. Uh, the truth was nobody knew how long we'd be locked down. I don't think anybody thought we'd be locked down as long as we have been. Uh, I don't think anybody really had a clue how it was going to play out. And the logical way of behaving was to go and uh, go and fill up your fridge, fill up your cupboards and hunker down. And I think that's what people did. And for the most part, the industry coped with that. It took a couple of weeks to fill the shelves. Um, and we know that that's because the algorithms on which just in time delivery depends really takes last the last few days and the last Wednesday or Thursday or whatever day it is as a predictor of the next one. Well, of course, that was completely unhelpful because nothing was like it had been only 24, 48, 72 hours earlier. So I think the industry did pretty well to uh, to deal with all of that. And I think consumers and shoppers have actually behaved pretty rationally through the whole of the last five months. There have been one or two um, bumps in the road, not so much in food, actually. I mean, the obvious one is toilet rolls. Um, and I take a little bit of responsibility for the toilet roll shortage because some time ago uh, I was asked during one of the um, aborted uh, no deal exits by Channel 4 News what I thought would be in short supply as a consequence of a no deal exit and because I didn't want to say it was a food product because I thought that would upset my members I just rather randomly said because I'd been told this that toilet rolls would be in short supply and that quote got dug out when and repurposed as we say now for the uh, pandemic and so i take responsibility for that uh, but You're i did i took the You're hit blame, yeah. i took the hit for my members yeah well um good you do many many good things so we'll, we'll forgive you the bog roll crisis of, of 2020. um <laughs> in terms of the um one of the things that struck me obviously i didn't come from a, cult, a supply chain or industry background before i turned up in in this world 
um, was the um, was that in a crisis everyone suddenly becomes a expert in logistics. It seems to me, it seems the media suddenly gets very interested in logistics, and and sort of ministers start talking about logistics, and, and even the sort of, I guess on boardrooms talking about logistics. Do you think that there's a lesson that we can learn from COVID about supply chain resilience, um, or are we sort of likely to be sort of repeating the same thing in a few years when the next thing happens? Well, I remember that a former chief uh, organizer of the Labour Party, the uh, the woman who organized the 1945 election victory, said the victory of ideals must be organized. I think she might have been quoting either Marx, Lenin or Engels. Um, but to me, that is absolutely right, that everything that we do needs to be organized. And having worked for two of the, the best organized companies in the world, uh, I think I probably realized that logistics was very important. I, I remember a particular lesson of their importance to me was I was I just joined Boots the Chemist. I've been working in Boots for two or three years, but I just joined Boots the Chemist as, uh, as communications director in September uh, 1997. And I was, uh, I was at the Labour Party conference for the first time. And obviously September 97 was a sort of triumphant occasion for Labour. And um, uh, I got this call to be told that the Boots main warehouse had burnt down in about an hour that morning. No casualties, everybody had been got out okay. But the entire Christmas stock of boots, which had gone in on the Saturday night, had been burnt to a crisp. And I remember thinking that that was, I thought the smoke-filled rooms were going to be in Brighton, and I'd been in the wrong place. Um, and it <laughs> turned out that Boots was able to reorganize its Christmas stock within a week and was able to fill the shelves almost without the uh, certainly without the shoppers and customers noticing and almost without anybody else noticing and i always remember that as a triumph of of logistics they we could have had the best christmas ad the great best products in the world but we might not have had them on shelf if they hadn't been so absolutely brilliant at logistics and that was a lesson to me which i remember talking about to david kennedy the head of um, food for defra when on the, I think it was the Friday or uh, I think it was the Thursday or Friday before the lockdown, he rang me and said, look, we're gonna, we're getting a lot of worry about panic buying. What do you think we should do? And I said, I think we should get the logistics chiefs of all of the food industry together mm. uh, every morning next week to try and get them to work out what should be done. And as it turned out, they'd already thought of that, of course, and yeah. that, turned into the Food Industry Resilience Forum, which met every morning through the crisis. And, and they hired Chris Tyus, an ex-Nestle chief of logistics. And much of the success of the last few months is down to that decision. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, my, my view of it was, I think that when we had that panic, the sort of the demand surge phase, logistics people coming to their own. I think there's nothing, there's nothing more yeah. compelling than that situation. I guess what worries me is the next bit when they start to have not as much to do, and you start seeing lorries parked up and 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 and, and no movement and, and 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 holes opening up in the chain. That I think is the crisis that logistics people fear most, and that's something we've had to learn and adapt to through the past few months as well. Um, can I ask you yeah. about? Um, sorry. 
I was, I was just going to say that one of the things that, that, that I think I'm, I'm, I'm much older than you, of course, but one of the things that my generation and, and to some degree, the last generation of business leaders has in its consciousness, though we, we were not involved, is the whole issue of, of the way in which logistics were crucial uh, during the 39-45 war. And, you know, yeah. the, you know, the fact of getting stuff to the front line, all, all of that kind of conversation. We grew up with that being discussed in our, amongst our parents and our grandparents' generation. And I think that does seep into the consciousness somehow. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And I think we probably had a little bit of complacency in some other places when it comes to not understanding where your food comes from, and kind of that bigger, bigger debate we sometimes fall into. Can I ask you one more question on this before I move on, Ian, which is really about I get asked nonstop, given who, what I actually specifically represent, the cold chain and, and, and cold storage, about stockpiling, whether it's about Brexit or it's about COVID. It's the whole issue of have we got enough supplies in a warehouse to serve our need in this interruption? Do you think that resilience in the future requires more product held closer to the customer or in the way the stockpiling debate runs out? Or is that really a realistic vision for the future of supply chain? Well, I don't think it's a realistic vision for the next couple of years, because we know from our experience of, of COVID and indeed from our experience of the aborted uh, no-deal exits, that there just isn't enough capacity and you can't build it in the time available. Um, over time, I think that might be a reasonable um, consideration, but I don't think it works for the next two, three, six, 12 months. I also think that we're always in danger of fighting the last war. Um, so every crisis you have is different. And I'm sure that we will spend, that investors and potential business and entrepreneurs will, uh, will spend hours, weeks, months coming up with solutions to the crisis that we've just lived through and won't spend their time trying to predict what the next one will do and the next one might be about something quite different yeah i think that sort of neatly links into the issues around brexit actually and really um and again talking about supply chain and supply chain that we the food supply chain in a post-brexit world um i guess the vision you hear from the brexiteer is this idea of this new opening up of new markets both for import and export and um um, and, and, and that being a, a big sort of brave new world for our, for, for our industry um, versus those on the more Remainer side talking about the closing down and the interruptions to our biggest market. How do you sort of see that kind of, do you think there's actually even properly any thinking going on about what does our food supply chain look like in 10 years time post Brexit in any part of government or any part of industry? Uh, actually, I do think there's a, uh, there, there is quite a lot of thinking going on about about that vision for the next 10 years. And I mean, from Henry Dimbleby, as he considers the next version of his uh, the next installment of his national food strategy. And indeed, to be fair to him, some of the, uh, the, the work he's already published to Tim Lang and his excellent book on food in Britain published uh, earlier this year and a whole range of other academics, and I think quite a lot of businesses thinking about that. But for me, the, the big question mark is how we're gonna get through the next six months. Um, yeah. I think there's a real danger that colleagues think that because, uh, and there's a lot of talk about this, there's a lot of talk that, that we were able to repurpose, um, that word incidentally is gonna cre keep cropping up, 
but we were able to repurpose the uh, the preparations for a no deal Brexit last year into the COVID-19 preparations and, and activities. And as a consequence, we were able to feed the nation. I think that is all true. But the conclusion which is then reached that therefore we're ready for uh, the exit from the transition period on the 31st of December and it will all be fine is absolutely wrong because this but, is a different but, exit. But you're right, yeah, but wasn't the government impulse and everything to do with COVID-19 planning to deregulate, to remove barriers, to make things easier and quicker? The problem with the Brexit model that we are building at the moment, particularly now, is one where we're putting in loads of human barriers or regulatory barriers to movement. So actually, I think that actually the two things potentially yeah, again, back to your analogy of fighting the last war, I don't think the Brexit crisis, if there is one, and let's hope there isn't, um, is going to be the same, solved in the same way as the COVID one um, in that regard. But then that's probably just uh, my view of that. Um, what do you think? Is that, am, I, am I on the right lines there? Well, I certainly think you're right about, about the, the contrast between the different approaches. Uh, I mean, I was struck very early on in the crisis when Mark Littlewood, a, a, a man I know and respect, though very rarely with whom I agree, the, the head of the Institute of Economic Affairs, Mark wrote a fascinating piece in the Times saying, if we can get rid of all of these regulations to save ourselves through COVID, shouldn't we be asking the question in three or four months' time, do we need to return, put them back in? Aren't, aren't, aren't we really saying that we didn't need them at all? And I have quite a lot of sympathy with that view in the sense that I think we have become, uh, 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 and you see it with this government a bit, that there's a kind of reaction to, uh, public is very angry, is, is quick to anger, and often very, very quick to judgment, often faulty. And, and as a consequence, there's a, a, an in absolutely understandable wish to show that something, not just something must be done, but something will be done. And so regulations or rules or different approaches are all tried. And, and what you get into is, for those of us who are of a particular age, the Dangerous Dogs Act, which was put into place when some poor child was savaged and, and killed by an Alsatian at some point in the 1980s or 90s uh, by Kenneth Baker, I think I remember. And, um, and then it turned out that these breeds would, were quickly phased out because owners didn't want to be savaged by their own dogs and certainly were horrified by what had happened. And a whole range of other problems emerged that the rules basically forced to happen. And so bad legislation, bad regulation is a big problem. I also think that, 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 that the, the way in which this crisis is different is that previously it was simply a question of worrying about imports to make sure that the shelves stayed full. This time round, uh, and this is where it's different from COVID, the issue will not be that you can, you, oh, it might, it might be that you would worry about keeping the shelves stocked for the first two, three, four, five weeks, but it'll be the issue of what happens in the longer term, and and for me, there's a big worry here that because we're we're setting up a whole series of different systems. For 45 years, we've had fr frictionless trade between all of the parts of the United Kingdom and all of the EU. And now what we're going to have is different systems. We're going to have a different system between the, the EU and Great Britain uh, and a different system that's different from the one we have now. The system between Great Britain and Northern Ireland 
is going to be different. And the system between Northern Ireland and Great Britain is going to be different from the way in which the rest of the uh, relationships, trading relationships operate. We've never had that before. And it's going to get people very cross because it's going to be expensive. It's going to be slow. And ultimately, it will result in delays to products being on shelf and choice will be reduced. And at some point in all of that, the shopper gets to see that what they were sold as no change and cheaper goods with more access has turned out to be lots of change, more expensive product and fewer choices to make. And that will make people very cross. Yeah, I think I can. I think you're absolutely right. One thing that made me shudder and made me really sort of well, just stand up and take notice was when I first saw that consultation program on the idea of the UK internal market and thinking we've not used that phrase. I've never heard that phrase in my lifetime before. And suddenly now we're talking about the internal market of the United Kingdom as though and and and, and a real threat to it, in fact. And that I think is a, a sobering moment for us all in terms of our vision for the future. Can I take you back into a question about um, something you said a bit earlier about sort of the, the food strategy and the idea of thinking about uh, about sort of how we feed ourselves in the long term? And I sort of totally concur that. And I think there's some really interesting stuff coming across there. One thing that struck me about that report, though, certainly its first its iteration, was that it talked a lot about the values behind food for the long term. You know, where you know regulatory standards, where it comes from, and and sort of nutritional value and all those sorts of things. Didn't we talk a lot about the mechanics of how it physically gets to the customer? And, I, and obviously from a cold chain perspective, that's what we care about. Do you think that's gonna feature at all in the food strategy? And do you think it should? I think it should. Um, I don't know whether Henry is gonna address that in, in um, part two of the report, which of course will be in effect the main report, uh, because it will be his vision of the sort of food um, system that he thinks the country needs going forward. And mm. I think it absolutely must underpin that kind of uh, big view uh, of the of the way in which the food system should operate for the next 20, 30, 40 years. I've been a huge supporter of the idea that we should have a national food strategy. I thought it's very odd. All, in all of my time working for Boots, which used to be a food retailer. We used to be the largest seller of sandwiches in the world. We used to own the lunchtime occasion in the late 1990s and sort of walked away from that. And working for Diageo, which had been a food and drink company and become a, a drinks company. I, I, I've always thought it was very odd that there wasn't a national food strategy. And when I got to the FDF, I realized that a very important predecessor of mine, Sir John Bodinar, who had been the permanent secretary at the Ministry of Food in the or deputy permanent secretary at the Ministry of Food in the war, had been the last person to write a national food strategy. So I mean, and that and that really sort of ran out of steam. The one that John Bodnar wrote really ran out of steam in the early 1950s. So I do think it's odd that we don't have a strategy for this because I think it is the most important responsibility of government. I think government's job is to feed the people. And if it doesn't do that, you know, that it's as we know from history, it's, it has very bad consequences. So I do think that it's um, it's an important part of it. And I think, interestingly, the public actually is is keen and curious about this. I think when you see the, the level of interest, for example, in a show like Inside the Factory, that thing that Greg Wallace does, 
people are really, really interested and want to know how their food is produced and how it gets to the table. And they care about it. The, the problem is we've sort of disconnected people in this country over the years from some of the key, you know, quite crunchy questions about, particularly in relation to, to animal-based food. You know, nobody particularly relishes seeing inside an abattoir. Nobody particularly relishes what happens to get chickens from the farm to the plate. And nobody particularly relishes seeing vast carcasses of meat transported in cold, you know, in the cold chain conditions. But, but and, and, and that's understandable. But that is that serves to disconnect the population, the eating population from what it's eating. And I think while that's, a, you know, that's inevitable, I suppose, in, in the sort of secularization of our society, it is something that, that we need to understand better. And the more information we can give people, the more they can make their own choices. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I totally, that's a really compelling point. In terms of the, um, I guess the sort of key thing I want to sort of, sort of cover now really is really about the whole issue. I think from a culture and federation perspective, you and I have talked about this before, um, the reason we exist really is about the issues around climate change, you know, and, and how do we, how do we sort of supply, how do we manage the food supply chain, the temperature controlled food supply chain um, in the next hundred years? Because we can't really do it in the way we've done it in the last hundred if we're going to meet the sort of net zero vision that the government has uh, has laid out and, and, and is as a bit of an imperative, as we as we well know. Um, from a FDF perspective, what work are you doing in this area around sort of the sort of climate impact of the food chain and the role of the UK food and drink manufacturing sector within that? Well, we, we, we have, a, as you said right at the start, we have a very broad membership. So we, we, we run from the Unilevers, Nestle's and Coca-Cola's all the way down to sole traders who were effectively operating out of their, sometimes out of their kitchen. Um, and the largest group of our members is businesses with under 20 employees. The largest members, the say top 20 food manufacturers in the country, probably actually account for about 35% of the volume of food going through our supermarkets if you take out fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, and so it, it, there is a paradox here that those who are best able to, uh, to those who have the resources to prepare for these sorts of issues are the ones who are doing it. But in some ways they are the ones who, who we can, if not discount, we know that peer pressure, shareholder pressure, investor pressure and government pressure, wherever they're domiciled, will come to bear on them to behave appropriately in facing a climate crisis. And we still have a climate crisis. Indeed, it, we almost should be able to see it in sharper relief because of the huge change in the num in the impact of emissions emissions during the lockdown. You know, we, we've all seen those effects. And I, I mean, I think, and those figures. So I think those those guys are going to be fine. The largest of my members who account for 80 odd percent of my subscription base. The issue is how you address this with all of the other players in the field who need who need to be brought to the table in a sense, but also need to understand what it is that they can do within their own um, 
within their own business model. And then alongside all of that, you've got what's going to happen with all of the other players in the world who are who are not subject to the same sort of investor pressures or uh, public pressure from activists that we have here. So China, India and the other um, what used to be called the BRICS, Brazil, Russia. Um, and uh, their engagement in this process is going to be critical if we're to succeed. Do you think we can we can deliver we can consistently have a more globalized food trade where we try and shift more of the food we buy and the food we export to further away in a kind of world in a simplification of the Brexit model with a more climate friendly food model? Yes, I do think that's possible. Um, and I think it's essential, in my view, this is about to sound astonishingly pompous, but in my view, it's critical for the future of capitalism that we do resolve those contradictions and conflicts. Um, I think, I think you know, global trade has been a massive benefit to most of the population of, this, of the countries of the world. Yes, it has brought with it when it's been uh, managed badly or selfishly, it has brought major, major problems. But it's also brought progress. And I, I would even argue that in a cack-handed, less than completely efficient way, it's also brought freedom and democracy over time. Now, not quickly enough, and, and one could have all sorts of philosophical arguments about that. But I, I do think we we know that global trade can empower and uh, and raise out of poverty whole nations, and we need to find ways of ensuring that it continues. I think you're absolutely right. I think I think there's a there's a resilience a resilience. There's so, there's so many different when we talk about climate resilience adaptation and climate change, there's so many different elements and layers to it. Whether it's being resilient on the one hand, having lots of different routes for for products and also um, making sure that we are putting the right inputs into what we grow and all those different different elements to it. I'm, I'm really struck by what you said earlier about the fact that the difference between the very big companies and the very small ones. Do you think we have, or do you think it's even possible for us to have a kind of ownership as a food chain on what net zero food what net zero food chain looks like? Because I'm struggling with that, and I have been for the two years I've been here. You know, is there a model that says this is what net zero looks like, and can we take ownership of that as an industry, rather than having to find for us? Well, I think I think you're right in the last uh, in that in the last analysis. If we don't take ownership, and if we don't advance a model or a series of models, uh, that decision will be made for us by governments. Um, it might not be made more, made for us in the next couple of years, although I would just just as a diversion, I would say that the one thing that or one thing that divides um, Boris Johnson and what is undoubtedly a relatively populist government um, and trying to be popular for politicians is seems to me part of the job. So I'm not deriding him for be, trying to be popular. That's how you win elections. And it's a good thing. But um, he, is a, he is, or at least his mandate has been achieved through populist means. But he is very different from the bloke in Hungary, Viktor Orban, or from uh, Trump 
or from Duarte in the Philippines, in that Boris Johnson is not a climate change denier. He's a climate change activist. Um, and so anybody who thinks that a pause in the pressure on plastics or a pause in the pressure for net zero um, is going to be anything more than very temporary is just uh, is kidding themselves. This is a government utterly committed to uh, a populist version of climate change action to, uh, and it will do it. So we have to come up with that vision. And I actually don't think it needs to be one vision. I think it could be many, many different views of it because we will not corral everybody into the same approach to this in this country um, any more than they will in India, any more than they will in, uh, in most of the countries of the world. We have to make progress uh, individually and incrementally as much as with some grand vision. So we must take ownership of it. And the key is to, for everybody to do so, not just those big 20 or 30 companies, but across the industry. And, and you know, we are grappling with that in the FDF about how we can do that at the same time as trying to make sure that our members survive the next two or three weeks, given the ravages of, um, of, of COVID-19. And do you think that build back better, build back greener is a real thing or is it just a political slogan? Uh, I don't think it's a real thing yet. Um, I think it's it's an aspiration of those who have had a lot of time to think during the COVID-19 crisis. One of the things that strikes me as a, as a bad thing about British politics and the thing that people should be very careful of is when you have middle class people telling working class people what to do. Yeah. Uh, I think there's a straight line from from that sort of behaviour to the um, to the Brexit vote and to other less. And I I mean I make no judgment on the Brexit vote. It's probably pretty easy to work out which side I was on, but it's a vote and it was lost. I think more from incompetence from the Remain side than the brilliance of the of the of the leave campaign but nevertheless it was lost and we must now deliver the deliver and live with the consequences but that sort of vote and some of the campaigning around it and some of the campaigning we've seen since it has played to some pretty uh, dodgy aspects of, of parts of our national character and i think that all a lot of those are a simple reaction and a visceral one to middle class people telling working class people what to do. Um, and I think that 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 is something that that great build back better does sort of ever so slightly uh, it's ever so slightly redolent of that. So what what we do has to play to people's everyday understanding. And I think one of the things that the government did brilliantly through COVID-19 was to link people's behavior to saving the NHS, uh, an institution about which they care mightily. And so, um, you know, stay safe, save our NHS, protect our NHS was a very, very sensible message. And we've got to find the equivalent of that for climate change if we are to succeed. Brilliant, thank you. Can I ask you one sort of last sort of question or sort of just one last topic to cover? Obviously, um, you took over FDF five years ago and you've been very focused on sort of creating a, 
a forum, a voice for the food manufacturing industry. And you've also done a lot of work to bring together sort of disparate voices across the kind of food industry through things like the Trade Association Forum, which you kindly allowed us to be part of, or the Trade Roundtable, I think, sorry, is the phrase we use for it. Um, what do you think is that sort of, what's the opportunity for collaboration um, within this space? How do you, why did you even start with that kind of way of working and, um, and why do you see the benefit of it? Well, I, I think there are, there are two separate trends there. Mm -hmm. One is, uh, and, and I, I got this very quickly. I mean, when I took over, the FDF was a bit of a missed opportunity, a bit sleepy. Um, and I don't think it had the national clout that its members deserved to have. Mm -hmm. And so I, I spent quite a lot of time working out how that could be achieved. And what became very clear was that so long as we were perceived as the big food federation, i.e. The, the vehicle of the top 20 or 30 members, yeah. we, would, we would not succeed. They gave us credibility and resource, but they didn't have the bandwidth or the, or the national breadth of appeal. And it was very clear to me that we, we had the right components because we had 200 odd other members who were not the big 20 or 30. Um, and so as I explored further, I realized that a lot of those people were also in other trade associations. Um, you know, multiple membership was a kind of fairly common thing amongst uh, member companies. And therefore, we needed to take those other organizations with us. And that broadened our appeal. And obviously, that took us into discussions with organizations where we might have 20 common members and 200 separate members. And that's where the roundtable really came from. And then the Brexit issue gave us the platform and the, and the kind of catalyst for those conversations. And now, subsequently, COVID-19 gave us an even bigger and more urgent one. I mean, I do think that there will be a place for consolidation over the next few months, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm already seeing that happen uh, yeah. because a number of our members simply won't afford those multiple memberships in future. And they also see that we are working together and they just want us to work together more. That doesn't mean we're going to have one big amorphous lump of a trade association. I don't think that would be a good thing. I think there's a place for some sort of for some sort of di for diversity and for some sort of confederation as well. And I think we do need to act together as different parts of the chain. You're right. And we have to be alive to the fact that I think you're right. I think you're right about the structural side of things. I think the reality of multiple memberships and stuff and all those sorts of things are a kind of are a challenging thing the more the more the years go by. But when it comes to the model which is sort of trying to be one consolidated powerful voice, well, we know in a world of social media and campaigning and NGO fragmented NGO networks we can't have a that that would be entirely the wrong thing for the industry to be one monolithic voice it does need to be multi-varied as well I think and so I think you have to sort of strike that right balance between the two things but anyway we digress we're getting into the trade association minutiae which is not very interesting to the rest most of our membership I'm sure um Ian thank you so much for giving me your time very generous of you I know how busy you are so thank you for that um and um we continue to sort of obviously good dialogue between us and we're very grateful to leadership you're showing um really keen that we develop more of these themes around how the logistics side of, of delivering the food strategy delivering the brexit on the child brexit challenge work and i think we can uh achieve a lot together so thank you very much uh, again shane thank you very much for having me and and thank you too to your members for 
everything they do for my members to make sure that we look great and that our fantastic products get delivered to the shoppers and consumers who want to consume them. So, yeah, thanks very much. And I look forward to working together very closely in the months and years to come. Brilliant. There we have it. That's another edition of the Cold Chain Podcast. I really uh, enjoyed that one. It's great talking to someone who uh, is very much at the top of the game when it comes to uh, leading a sectoral body. And I think if we can achieve um, even part of what the FDF have achieved in terms of their ability to uh, get the, the ear of senior people in government, then I will be very pleased. As you probably noticed, I'm six months into this now. and I'm not really getting that much better at technology, so I'm really sorry about the varying levels of audio through this and some of the editing uh, skills I'm displaying aren't going to get me a job on any kind of major broadcast outlet anytime soon. There's probably a reason why people train to do this and do it well. Right, so we've got some great uh, podcasts coming up. Um, we're going to be talking to Richard Burnett, the Chief Executive of the Road Haulage Association. We're going to be talking to Richard Harrow, the Chief Executive of the British Frozen Food Federation, and many more. So if you haven't yet, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Do so via your Apple uh, podcast app or via your, your Android uh, platform or use it all via the Audioboom website. Whatever way you do it, just sign up and that way you'll um, help us to get more visibility for our podcast and you'll never miss an episode. Thanks very much and I look forward to speaking to you next time.